We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. To launch a successful subscription business, you need to think like an innovator. But what does that really mean? Rita McGrath is widely recognized as the premier expert on leading innovation and growth, particularly during uncertain times. A longtime professor at Columbia Business School, Rita is also the author of several best-selling books, including Discovery Driven Growth, The End of Competitive Advantage, and her most recent book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. In today's episode, we talk about the right skills to launch, scale, and lead a subscription initiative, the neuroscience of the status quo, and the seven archetypes of innovation. Rita, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Robbie. So I invited you to the show because I have seen too many people who are tapped to figure out subscription because they've been at the company a while, but then they fail. What advice do you have for people who've been asked to lead a major innovation, particularly subscriptions, when they haven't done something like that before? Well, anytime you're doing something new, you're not going to be very good at it. And so the real challenge is how do you get up that learning curve as quickly as possible? So my general advice when undertaking a big business model change is to start with some experiments, some you know low cost, low risk places where you could perhaps test out part of the thesis before turning your whole business model on its head. <laughs> <laughs> what would be examples of the kinds of experiments that you might do or how you might tackle that? Well, you could, for example, start by offering uh, one of your offerings on a subscription basis. So for example, when Adobe was considering going from shrink-wrapped packaged software that people owned to shifting over to subscriptions, they didn't do it all at once. They started with a couple of different products and offered them, you know, kind of at the low end to artists and people on a streaming basis and got their feet wet in it before they converted their whole business model. But eventually they did convert their entire business model over to subscriptions, which took a huge amount of effort, as you can imagine, and a huge amount of explaining. I mean, I think another thing that your listeners might want to be really aware of is that the business model for subscriptions is so different than the business model for ownership. If you're part of a publicly traded firm or if you have investors, you're going to have to explain to them what's different. You know, the, the cash flows are different. The shape of what you're offering is different. The level of service you have to provide is different. And just it's all going to be really new. So people need to understand how should they evaluate you? What are the metrics do you need to use? Those kinds of things. Yeah. There's a lot of storytelling involved, it sounds like, and a lot of education. Part of it is selling, but part of it is also educating. Well, it is. And I think, you know, if you take something as simple as the traditional sales funnel, you know, I mean, that, that every marketing 101 class teaches that, right? But with a subscription model, that evaporates. You know, what you've got now is a continuous flow of interactions with customers who may be at various stages of building a relationship with you. It's a completely different way of thinking about your sales process. 
Yeah, I sometimes say that in the membership economy, the moment of transactions, the starting line, not the finish line, and it's where the real work begins. And I think a lot of organizations have been educated that that is where you take a deep breath and go back out and start thinking about what's next, new customers, instead of really digging in on what you've got. Well, right. And the whole customer success function changes too. If you think about it, you know, an awful lot of subscription stuff is really shelfware. Tiffany Bova at Salesforce talks about this. She says, you know, the typical large multinational corporation has well over a thousand applications and only about 24% of them are integrated. And so the rest are, you know, either handled on an individual basis or they're just sitting on the shelf. And, you know, if people don't use your product, they're not going to continue subscribing. Right. I think that's a really important point. Engagement becomes the most important metric for success as opposed to short-term sales numbers. If your customers aren't using your product, if it's become shelfware, at some point they're going to get around to canceling. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I would mention is that because you're not buying something in a typical subscription model, you know, it takes a while before you're making a profit on any new customer. And so when you're looking at your sales teams, you really want to be mindful of how you're compensating them because what you don't want is them giving away the store to get that sale, right? But then neglecting to realize that the initial sale isn't going to pay the bills. You've got to have, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's more interactions with that customer before you're actually turning them into a profitable line of work, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've certainly seen that happen with companies where they've asked their existing big game hunter salespeople to go out and sell small game subscriptions where but compensation has not been adjusted and it's still based on total revenue. And the salespeople drag their feet on it, partially because maybe they don't know how to sell the subscriptions, but more likely because they're not going to make as much money because the revenue takes longer to trickle in. And I think that's another important element of this transformation of this innovation process is to understand how your colleagues, how different parts of the organization are going to be affected by the change and whether they're going to support you or not and whether they're capable of supporting you, whether they whether they have the skills and then also whether they have the desire and usually it's not right i mean if you've got a business unit head who's running an existing operation right you turn the crank and money comes out you turn the crank and money comes up and you come along with your weird small <laughs> you know never been seen before idea and they're going to look at you and you're just a nuisance. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. it's to say, but you're really in the early, early stages. So you're just a, a bother. So you really need to architect that connection between the business units and the novel businesses very carefully. Yeah. So talk to us about innovation and how it's done when it's done right. Which is rare. <laughs> <laughs> Astonishingly, you know, that so many companies just haven't figured it out. So the first misconception about innovation that everybody has is it's all about the idea, right? Of, oh, you know, we could just get more great ideas. And so we have all this innovation theater, you know, you've got hackathons and, and uh, boot camps and, you know, thousands of yeah. post notes die a painful death while we're ideating. And it's, of course, ideation is important. You need a continuous flow of lots of good ideas, but you also need incubation, that space to kind of go from an idea to something that is actually robust enough to be introduced to a market. And then when you decide it's ready, now you've got this process we were just talking about, which is acceleration, which is, you know, your main business is like an eight-lane highway coming along, and your new little business is just on the on And so in acceleration, now you've got to mature the processes. Now you've got to invite legal in. Now compliance has to be there. And so it's it's a whole set of processes that are necessary. And in a proficient organization, they're all working together. You've got lots of flows of good ideas. You've got a process around incubation. You've got the metrics. You have a metric for when something's ready to be brought into the market. 
you've got business unit heads who kind of understand that we're all working on a common objective. That's a big, important point. And so when it's working well, it's not depending on individual heroics or one person who's leading the charge. It's really a systemic capability that the organization has built. So I was recently talking to a team from a big public manufacturer, and they were saying, you know, each of our business units innovates well on their own product, but we feel like we're missing the bigger opportunities that are out there because we don't see what we don't look for. And they were asking this question of how do you bring innovation, capital I innovation, not innovation at the business unit level, but sort of innovation bold moves, next big thing, you know, how do you bring that into an organization when the organization, as you described, has become so good at doing things the way that they needed to do it for the existing business? How do you balance those two things simultaneously? And especially if right now you're not doing a very good job of balancing those two? Well, there's a a series of answers to that question. I think the first point I would make though is don't think you've got to have a huge team or a ton of resources to do this. In fact, you're much better off with a small team resources. And that kind of flies in the face of the way a lot of companies go after this. You know, their instinct is to say all this resource and say, let's go for the next big thing. Autonomous vehicles would be a case in point, right? Billions of dollars spent on this idea that maybe someday we'll all be having robots drive us around. So that's not the right way to do it. So the first question you've got to decide is where are you going to put this activity? And there's seven archetypes I talk about. So archetype one is you could put it in a business unit. Uh, That's organizationally easy, but unlikely to get you that breakthrough result because they're focused on today. Archetype two is you have an independent unit within an existing business. That's a little better, but you're still very vulnerable to getting knocked sideways by the existing crisis in the existing business. Third archetype is stick it in something like R&D. And that's fun, but uh, you can lose sight of the customer when you you have that. Fourth archetype, and this is the one that probably I like the best, is you have a senior staff person whose sole responsibility is looking after the innovation programs. And they have resources and reporting lines into existing business units. So at IBM, for example, what they did was they created what they call the Emerging Business Opportunity System. And the way that worked was they would take a very senior person out of their role. So somebody like Rod Adkins, who was running the Unix business for IBM back in the day, he had 20,000 people working for him. And then after he gets assigned to this EBO, you know, he has like six analysts. And his mission, though, was to go figure out pervasive computing for IBM. And he reported right up to a guy who was reporting directly to Palmasano, who reported directly to Gerster, a guy named Bruce Harold was his name. And Bruce's job was to protect those innovations from getting cannibalized. And so what Atkins would do is they would really carefully look at this big opportunity, pervasive computing. Today, we would call it the Internet of Things. Then what they did was they started to take existing business units and fold it under his control. So they built up a new structure that was suitable for the innovation rather than force-fitting it into what exists right now. Fifth archetype is having a whole new ventures division. That's what they did at Nokia very successfully for many years. Six is you have it report right to the CEO. That solves a lot of your political problems. It solves a lot of your resource problems. But here's the trouble. You know, innovations are unpredictable. And when it reports directly to the CEO, you can't kill anything. (laughs) (laughs) Enormous flops. And then the seventh archetype is one that I'm currently really interested in. And it's something I call the permissionless organization, where you've got throughout the whole organization, you've architected it so that anybody can participate. And you do things in parallel. You do things much faster. You do a lot of experimentation. So companies like Amazon and Tesla would operate this way, where there's a structure, there's guidelines, and technologies used to do that. But within those guidelines, there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of freedom allowed. 
Yeah, those seven archetypes, I think for so many organizations, even just to go through those and, you know, which one of these is going to be easiest to make happen here, most effective, gives us a good place to start and aligns best with our culture and with the specific challenges that we're facing. There's no perfect answer, right? I mean, every one of them has pros and cons. So if you're in an existing business unit, the cool thing is, you know, you've got HR at your disposal, you've got procurement, you've got these resources. Whereas if you're in an independent entity, you have to come up with how you get that stuff handled, right? Right, exactly. It's a trade-off. One approach won't work forever either. So you talk about the stages of innovation, ideation, incubation, acceleration. Can the same person lead through all three stages or does it require a dramatically different skill set? I have seen the same person able to do it. So people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but they're rare, right? Most people gravitate towards one or another. So, you know, your wild-eyed blank sheet of paper, invent from absolutely nothing. People are maybe not the people you want designing your supply chain. <laughs> and so <laughs> what you'll find is there's a tendency for people to gravitate to one or another of those uh, places. A very typical thing that you'll see is um, startup guys or internal entrepreneurs are very good at the sort of ideation incubation. But once it gets handed over to a routine operating group, they're just not interested anymore. That's not why they get out of bed in the morning. And then there are others where that continues to be exciting to them and they continue to figure out how to scale it. But typically it would be different skill sets that get brought in at different points in that life cycle. Yeah. Something that I want to emphasize though, is that a lot of times I'm in Silicon Valley and we love our ideation people here, right? We love our incubation people here and scaling, you know, a lot of times people will say things like, well, I get bored. It's just not interesting. And I think for the right person, scaling is fascinating. It's yeah. challenging. And frankly, the delta in value that you're creating in the scaling process is amazing. But I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I'm a scaler, if I'm an accelerator, maybe I'm not, you know, it's fine if you're, you know, if you're both or all three, but it's not really, I don't want to say as respected, but I think on the West Coast and in maybe some other entrepreneurial hotspots, people really want to be associated with the new, new thing. Yeah, that can happen. I would say, though, that the scalers are the ones that, you know, if you're going to get a payback for all the investment you're making in innovation, if you don't have those people, you're never going to get a rich payday. You know, Safi Bakal, who wrote a wonderful book called Loonshots, has a great way of thinking about this. He says, you need to think about your artists. These are our blank piece of paper, new thing people, and your soldiers, right? <laughs> and your artists are going to be creating new things, and your soldiers are going to be bringing them to life. And you need both. And you need to treat both with dignity and respect. Absolutely. I like that. So I want to talk to you about the mirror acquisition by Lululemon, <laughs> a story about, I'm just reading this, a story about a global pandemic, companies trying to make business sense out of an unprecedented behavioral shift and a sense of urgency that can sometimes cloud decision-making. Can you share some of the key lessons? Because that's particularly interesting to me, you know, because of the blend of the membership and relationships and the old business, new business assumptions that go behind these things, right? So just to set the context, so Lululemon is, you know, is this very famous athletic apparel company that really pioneered the athleisure movement. You know, they opened a lot of doors, very successful company and, you know, run pretty well with an interesting backstory. Their founder is amazing. It's, he's got an amazing character story, but I won't go there. So we've got Lululemon that makes 
athletic apparel, which actually served them pretty well during the pandemic uh, when everybody was at home and, you know, you didn't have to wear grown-up pants to go to work. And then we have Mirror, which was a company founded by a ballerina, of all things. And as many of you may know, it looks like a regular old mirror when it's just hanging on the wall. But if you activate the software inside it, it shows you a coach or it shows you a class and you imitate the actions of the coach and class. Well, Mirror, like Peloton, like a lot of those other kind of pandemic popular brands, sales are flying off the shelf, right? And the way the business model works is you have to buy the hardware and then you have to subscribe to the lessons, the coaching, the lessons, the whatever, uh, similar to Peloton, right? And so Lululemon was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, active wear at home and home exercising, you know, people are never going to go back to the gym. How do we make sure that we are part of this exercise at home world for real? And I think at the time, their uh, CEO was quoted as saying something like, we want our customers to sweat with us using the people in the mirror. We want everybody who's in the mirror program to be wearing Lululemon. I mean, that was the idea, right? Mm -hmm. And the concept was that it would create greater stickiness because if you owned a physical thing, that you were more likely to continue to use it and that it would generate more subscription. Okay, so fast forward. So then they offered $500 million, paid $500 million for it. And just the year before, and this is the part that it kind of is a head scratcher, just the year before, Mirror had raised around a venture financing that valued the company at about $300 million. So somehow... In 2019, they were worth 300 premium. million. In 2020, <laughs> they were worth 500 million. Go figure it. So, you know, what happens? The pandemic ends. We decide we're bored with being at home. We go back to the gym, you know, sales sort of level up. But more importantly, what Lululemon's learning is that that subscription model just isn't a good fit with their business, right? You know, their business selling actual clothes. And the subscription model is much less predictable. They kind of overpaid for the acquisition, and I think they began to see that whole line of business as a distraction. And they ended up taking $400 million right down maybe last year, and then and now they're looking for somebody to buy it, and I haven't updated myself on it. I don't know if they found a buyer yet, but they're basically saying, we'll take this thing off our hands for free. Yeah. So in that kind of a situation, I mean, I remember when that deal happened, and people thought, wow, this is you know going to be a category killer. This is so prescient of them. People who wear the clothes, now they're exercising, virtuous cycle, deeper relationship with the customers. I mean, I could have said Lululemon is very episodic, right? You know, when I walk out of the Lululemon store, they have no idea if I'm ever going to come back, right? There's no contractual relationship, no ongoing formal structure. Now they're creating a formal structure with their customers that gives them a way to communicate with them on an ongoing basis to learn more about them. Seems great. But it turned out to be a distraction that they couldn't rise above. Early in many innovation is a distraction. So sometimes you say, we need to push through this distraction and make it into part of the new normal. That's how you move forward. And sometimes you have to say, like you just said about this particular partnership or this particular acquisition, ah, you know, this was a mistake. It was too distracting, too different. They couldn't really get their arms around subscription as part of their bigger model. And now they're basically giving away an asset that they paid a half a billion dollars for just a few years I know, ago. It's amazing, right? <laughs> so it's amazing. And, you know, the question I have is how do you know when it's a good idea versus a bad idea? Were there warnings? We can look, you know, kind of look back on it in 2020 hindsight. Looking forward, could you have seen those warning signs, knowing as much as you know about innovation? Because you've said, you know, this doesn't maybe because they were overpaying, maybe because they were doing a massive change because of a, what everybody hoped and prayed was a very time-delimited, unique moment. Would you have said not to do it? Well, I would have gone through a process, right? And the process I use is, I call it discovery-driven planning. And basically what it says is when you're doing something that's new to you, involves a fair amount of uncertainty, 
your main job is to map out whether the assumptions you're making are realistic or not. So the way I started Discovery Driven Plan is I say, well, what would success look like? What would have to be true for this thing to work out? So if you go back and look at the mirror acquisition, you're paying half a billion dollars for the thing. You know how much the subscriptions are worth. You know how much the machine costs. You know, therefore, how many subscribers and users you need. And what I would ask myself is, well, what would the increment to Lululemon's bottom line need to be? And I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it's add five or 10% of their revenue, right? Like, let's say that's the bar. Well, you can back work into what would have to be true for that bar to be met. And I suspect what you would find if you really did those numbers is that the total addressable market would have to be like six times what the available market is to create that kind of financial benefit for Lululemon. And so you've not gone forward at step two of my process. So it has five steps. So the first step is you define what success would look like and you develop what I call a reverse income statement to say, okay, what would have to be true? Step two is you then do this reality check. You know, well, does this imply I need 4,000% of the available market or is it more realistic? Step three is you document operationally what would have to happen. So this is where you get into the nitty gritty of how am I going to sell the things? How am I going to deliver them? Are they going to be in a Lululemon store? Like, okay, so how many trucks do I need? What deliveries do I need? How much inventory do I need? And then as you're doing all that, you're going to be documenting your assumptions. And then the last thing you would do is you plan, but you plan around checkpoints. So for the Lululemon thing, uh, for the mirror thing, an initial checkpoint might just be, let's really dig into this idea of if you could go back to the gym, would you? You know, and just, I mean, their big assumption was that people's habits had permanently changed, that once we got used to exercising at home, that we would continue to do that. And that's a big assumption. And lots of people made that assumption. Peloton certainly did. And they acquired Precore for the same exact reason. Yeah. And you could have rewritten that story the same way. And so in my process, what you would have done is you said, well, is this being realistic? What are some of the critical assumptions that have to be true? And I'm not saying that it's perfect foresight, but it would certainly throw up a red flag to say, hey, is this even going to make sense at a corporate level? So I'll give you another example. And it's sort of subscription-y. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and Kerrig, Dr. Pepper, did this joint venture around a concept they called Drinkworks, which was idea of a, a machine that would make alcoholic beverages, so it would mix you a cocktail. And they announced it with great fanfare in 2017. They hired food scientists, they production led, they did all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, December of 2021, after announcing they were going to roll this out nationally, they just abruptly shut it down without any warning, without any fanfare. And so I went back and did an analysis of that business. And what you come to realize very quickly is if you take care, I think you take Anheuser-Busch and you combine their revenues, this thing would have to be capable of delivering something like $1.2 billion of sales in addition to what Anheuser-Busch and Kerry are already doing. And to accomplish that, like every man, woman, and child who drinks in America would have to buy six of these things a day. I mean, the numbers just... <laughs> and, uh, and so what they did, they made this classic mistake, which is they made the assumption they knew what they were doing. And they built this huge team around this concept without really testing whether it made sense. Now, an entrepreneur, a founder who's founded a company called Bartesian, now he's not starting with that. It's got to be a billion dollars. He's starting with, you know, can I make a living at this thing? And he's building a really viable business out of the Bartesian machines, which are now available in Walmart and you, know, you can get them by a subscription and he's making it work really well. But among the critical differences is he doesn't have that need for bigness hanging over him. But more importantly, he's pods are the flavor. 
you buy your own booze. <laughs> and with the Drinkworks machine, the booze was in the packages. And what that means is you now introduced an incredible of complexity in how you distribute it because you can't just send those through the mail, right? You, right. It was far easier than you can. Uh, you have to actually sell them through a liquor store. You have to have, and depending on the state that you're in, that may be a state-run liquor store. It could be private or whatever. So you're just introducing a level of complexity that I think was overwhelming for the business. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, all the little details that come together and all the things that you don't realize you don't know. Sort of brings me to the next area that I wanted to talk to you about, which is what do you do when your innovation, your new idea requires multiple simultaneous transformations. So, you know, in the case that you just described, you know, they needed to learn about sending alcohol to people's homes. You know, they need to have hit these very big numbers. They need to learn about subscriptions, all of these kind of new things happening at once. The example of Mira and Lululemon, right? They had to learn about subscription, but also a much more sophisticated understanding of digital business would be required with Mira, I think, than with running a commerce business that has a store. How do you think about that and managing multiple transformations when it's not just one thing that has to change, but it's actually going to lead to kind of a domino effect of multiple transformations? The guideline here is not to bite off too much at once, right? So you can do that if you operate in parallel. So you've got one team learning about e-commerce and another team at the same time learning about store placement and another team really studying consumer behavior and another team really say, you know, you can learn a lot because you're breaking the task up into pieces. Yeah. And this is what these permissionless organizations that I talk about do. They, they take these large complex problems and they break them up into digestible chunks so that any one team is not overwhelmed. The other thing that I think is really important is you, because you've got the work broken up into pieces, you get to results much more quickly. So rather than approaching it like this big monolithic, you know, we made the announcement and now everybody's scurrying around and the whole organization is like doing things in sequence. What you're doing is things in parallel. And that's things up. It gives you faster learning. It increases your organizational clock speed. It does a lot of really good things for you. Very smart. Lots of great phrases that you have coined. You know, we've talked about innovation theater and discovery-driven planning. Talk about neuroscience of the status quo. These are great phrases. Maybe you can share a little bit about neuroscience of the status quo. And then the next question I'd love to ask is, how do you come up with these ideas, these, these uh, phrases? So the way our brains are wired, right, is when we're engaged in predictable activity, because thinking takes a lot of energy, right? Our brains are trained to use sort of fast thinking, right? So if you think about it, you make hundreds of decisions every day. You know, ever have this experience where you drive home from, say, a commute, and you walk in your front door and you have no actual recollection of how you got there. The and that's our neuroscience taking over. What it's doing is it's taking the burden of having to think about things away from us. Because if you had to think about every single thing you had to make a decision about all day long, you'd be paralyzed, right? So what the brain does is it conserves energy. So anything that's routine, it just sort of puts in that space that goes, yeah, yeah, okay, routine. And that's going to lead to predictable, what my friend Greg Galley calls predictable paths. If you want to do something new, you have to introduce some kind of shock or some kind of stimulus into the brain. And that is what triggers our imagination. And that is what in turn gets us to think differently about the path that we're going to take, right? So it's a little surprise, right? And if you think about the process of getting ideas, and my friend Jeremy Utley talks about this, he said, the process of getting ideas is you're connecting things. It could be two concepts. It could be two experiences. It could be two whatever. But the process of getting an idea is you're making that connection. So here's an example he uses in his recent book. So you watch a San Francisco couple burdened with a heavy motor, a heavy stroller, up trying to push the stroller up a hill. And then you remember that your dad had a motorized wheelbarrow when you were, you know, a motorized um, lawnmower when you were a kid. Boom, you know, two ideas come together and we're thinking, oh, motorized 
is bugging out. Is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? We don't have no idea at the early stages. But now you've got a concept, right, which is this process of putting these two ideas together. So when you're trying to come up with something new, the neuroscience of it is you need to introduce that idea of, oh, I've now got this new thing and I can connect it to that new thing. And if you think about the process of human imagination, that's what it is. We get startled by something and say, wait a minute, that didn't work out the way that I thought, or that was new, or that was unusual. And it sparks our imagination, which is the more energy intensive part of our brain. You know, we actually have to put some effort into thinking. And this uh, Danny Kahneman famously talks about thinking fast and slow, yeah. right? And our default is fast thinking. And you don't want to do that if you're involved in something that's expensive or dangerous or risky. You want slow thinking. You want painstaking, attention managing things. So I think that's this kind of neuroscience aspect to it. Yeah, very important. I think if you're you know, back to this company that wants to be more innovative, right? One of the things that they need to do, I think, is to create space for slow thinking, which is very different from sort of how you go through your day where you're like, I don't even remember what I did today, but it went, you know, people often will say at five o'clock or six o'clock when they log out, you know, boy, today was a blur. I don't even remember, you know, like the drive home, your whole workday can become that because you're doing things you know how to do. And it just kind of takes, you know, it's like you get on the ride and then you get off at the end of the day. So I think that's really important is, you know, kind of making space for it. And the other piece that I think is important to call out is this idea of juxtaposition of different ideas and how that can sometimes spark something new and how a lot of companies when you know a lot of innovators will say it's you know in my world of subscriptions it's the netflix of fill in the blank uh-huh. right it's the netflix of you know bicycles it's the netflix of you know automotive engineering it's the netflix of strategy consulting and that gets people thinking about what could that possibly mean and then i think the challenge is then you have to say okay which of those ideas is the best idea what does it really mean to be the netflix of video games Right. And which of these many, many ideas are we going to use? Super helpful. And then last question is these phrases, where do you come up with them? How do you coin them? Oh, well, that I'm not consciously sure I know the answer to that. What I will tell you is I do an awful lot looking at concepts. You know, I read a lot. I spend a lot of time with books and with authors and in conversations. And so there's a lot of kind of variety. So back to Jeremy again, he talks about the more Lego bricks you have in your bundle of ideas, like just the more you have to connect like the more chances are that you'll run across something that's really fruitful. So that's one of the reasons, for example, why diversity is so important in organizations, because diverse people, people who are different than you, and that could be many dimensions of diversity, but they bring their own bucket of blocks, right? And so now you've got more blocks to connect. And the chances that some of those connections are going to be amazing is much greater if you've got more to choose from. So I think it's this idea of taking lots and lots of different inputs and connecting them in an interesting way. So here's one that I did just last week. I was looking at this fascinating confluence of we got big food, right? Which creates super delicious stuff, but we consume too much of it. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of people struggle with their weight. Then we got the whole diet industry, right? Which Oh, I saw your comments yeah, on this. Which yes. evidence tests is not ever the people that succeed on like Weight Watchers and stuff is a very small proportion of their total customer base, but I guess hope springs eternal. And now you've got the pharmaceutical industry coming into that whole nexus with these drugs that are sort of miracle drugs. They actually lead people to lose weight. They crave less. They don't want the, you know, they're sort of, it makes them immune to what the food companies have kind of engineered into their food. And I just think this is a fascinating sort of nexus of these different sectors coming together and we'll see where it all goes. But, but that's an example, right? Where I'll run across something and I go, well, that's kind of an interesting thing to observe. Yeah, we'll see where that ends up. But the obesity epidemic and the metabolic dysfunction in the world right now you know, everybody's taking a piece of it, but hopefully somebody is going to figure out how to actually make us better. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So we covered a lot, lots more questions that I have that I could ask you, but I think I'll pause for today and hope that you'll come back again. But before you go, would you be up for doing a speed round with me? Sure. Okay. The first subscription that you remember having? It was these big books about movie stars and stuff. And I begged and begged and begged my parents into letting me have it. So it's things like Clark Gable and Great Stars of the 30s. And this big, beautiful coffee table book would arrive once a month. That was the first one I remember having. Oh, I love that. Okay. Your favorite subscription that you use today? Probably my Microsoft package because I lives with me. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe a favorite, I'm not sure would be the right answer, but most, most useful. A company that you haven't worked with whose approach to innovation has really impressed you? Tesla. Your favorite place to take a visitor to Columbia for lunch? Probably Le Monde, which is on Broadway and 113th Street. Most exotic place where you've ever spoken? Jakarta, Indonesia. And one piece of advice for people who are listening, if they're thinking, I'd like to be a little more innovative, innovation into my big or small team, what would be one thing that they could do right away? Practice. Practice, set aside 20 minutes, half an hour, and set yourself a little problem. So how might I improve X, fill in the blank, and then generate as many ideas as you can. One of the things that we know about ideas is that the first idea you have is almost never the best idea you'll have. So what you want is quantity. Generate a lot of ideas and make it a practice. Set 15, 20 minutes every day to do it. And what you'll find is just setting aside that time kind of gives your brain permission. Another really good practice is before you go to sleep at night, Give yourself a little challenge and let your subconscious work on it overnight as you sleep. Rita, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. It was a pleasure. Lovely to chat to you. That was Columbia professor Rita McGrath, author of Seeing Around Corners. For more about Rita, her work, and her books, go to ritamcgrath.com. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Rita, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Rita and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.